Red Dirt Rising takes on NASCAR's origins, moonshine running, and World War II on less than a half a million dollar budget. Boy, do they got their work cut out for them, and so do we here on Zoom Lens. You know, around here, a mason jar's got more lives than a cat. So you need to quit messing with that devil juice, I tell you. Look, Fred, how we come by let him die on this. If you want to impress her, why don't you just show her what you got? Because I ain't got squat. Speed, stupid. Tell you about that truck up there. I'm through letting you take chances with what little the good Lord has seen fit to provide us. Welcome back to Zoom Lens. This is episode five. My name is Eric Estep. I'm joined as always by Josh Mole. And today, Josh, we're looking at Red Dirt Rising. Before we jump into this historical biopic, really, I want to add a brief disclaimer. I know we said in our most recent episode that we'd be reacting to and reviewing Fireball 500. That's still coming. We ran into some technical difficulties, had to re-record some parts. And then you know, between, you know, I was in Pocono, we had tons of news the last couple weeks. We've both been really busy with other racing-related responsibilities. We haven't gotten around to tweaking that episode, but it will be coming very, very soon. But we're talking about Red Dirt Rising today, which is a, a tale of NASCAR's early origins. Bootlegging, moonshining, early dirt track racing. Bill France Sr., or let's say a Bill France Sr. stand-in, <laughs> is very present in this movie. Josh, welcome to Episode 5. What are you most excited about talking Red Dirt Rising? I think I'm most excited for the fact that so far in this, we I came into this show thinking that I would have such difficult demands for what my perfect racing movie would be and that we were going to watch just a bunch of junk in search of this perfect racing movie. And instead, we have watched a little bit of junk, but mostly awesome racing movies and every single time I put a little a new goalpost out there of yes this but it's not enough of that we get a movie like this I have been begging for I want to see more of NASCAR's early history I want to see more moonshiners I want to see those dirt track country road routes and okay this movie exists this movie is here for us to go through this history of NASCAR movie period piece at the very beginning of its history. I I can't believe I, we just, I continue to get exactly what I want. Yeah, you know, when I think of racing movies, everyone thinks of Days of Thunder, Talladega Nights, but you don't realize there are a lot of these I'll say smaller budget, more independent films that do exist that do tell kind of stories about every angle of NASCAR that you wouldn't expect. Like like you said, I, I didn't expect there to be a recent, because this movie was released in 2010, 2011, uh, I didn't expect a fairly recent movie to have been made uh, all about Jimmy Llewellyn, you know, based on real NASCAR drivers. Curtis Turner is in this. I mentioned Bill France Sr. in this. Like, this is 
a, a biopic about the origins of NASCAR that exists. And you know, I want to preface this. We always talk about you know the racing scenes, the racing history, the icons that are on the screen when we do this podcast, but we also talk about the filmmaking, the storytelling, the editing, the shot selection, et cetera, et cetera. I want to preface this. This is a historical movie. It's a period piece, like you said. I'm not the biggest history guy in the world, not like our friends uh, Ben White and Jerry Bonkowski on the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. They live and breathe history. And while I'm not a, the biggest history guy, I certainly have a deep and appreciative respect for it. And I enjoy going back and seeing uh, you know, historical clips, reading news articles and interviews, some of the great early sound bites of the sport. Like I, I get I get a lot of it brings me a lot of joy seeing and hearing a lot of that stuff, but it's not the kind of thing I typically live in and breathe for it seems the way even you do josh i know you were really excited about this one with all the bootlegging backgrounds and everything um so i wanted to preface that preface this whole episode by saying that like i I, i'm 24 years old i feel like for a lot of people who who've been around longer who've lived through a lot of these historical moments that have seen and heard from these historical figures firsthand at some point in their lives it's easier for history to come to life it's easier for them to remember directly how they felt when some of these major events were happening and uh obviously you're not old enough to remember (laughs) the formation of nascar (laughs) josh not in world war ii (laughs) absolutely not but i think that is kind of where we maybe have slightly different perspectives. I know you're a history guy. So um, before we get into the racing history, I do want to get into some of the specifics of this film, the way this film was was put together. So it was directed by Kathleen Bobak and James Suttles. Suttles? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's one or the other. Uh, it stars Brad Yoder, Burgess, Burgess Jenkins, Ashley Payne, Quentin Kerr, uh, as uh, well, Brad Yoder plays Jimmy Llewellyn, who is a real-world NASCAR driver uh, who actually raced in NASCAR's first ever race at Charlotte in 1949, which actually does happen in this movie. We'll get to uh, later on down the line. But uh, regarding this movie specifically, it was shot largely in 2007. Most of the filming took place throughout that year. There were some reshoots in 2009, but the film actually premiered at North Wilkesboro Speedway in 2010, May 15th, 2010. I thought that was super interesting. So they knew their audience. They knew coming into this who, what their audience was. And uh, so, I don't know, Josh, what, what does, did that tell you anything about kind of where the film yeah, I think were at? it's not only, I, you know, I, I would almost, I would say that's, that's a little too cynical even in that there is so much love for NASCAR and the history of NASCAR. And not just that, but I would say the history of this part of North Carolina and and these people and uh, it, it this is a work of love and care and it is very earnest uh, about that um, it, this this felt um, very sincere in all of that and and that really does I, I think that that's super interesting actually that they were at North Wilkesboro. Uh, as well like that is perfect that the is timing perfect. is great it's too. that kind of like only if you know you know only real fans would know that kind of thing that is that is laced through this movie to the point that they can even uh not finish sentences and if you're a nascar fan you know exactly what the end of that sentence was it's it's that kind of love for uh easter eggs and uh bits of history i think is comes through very strongly and that's funny it's even part of the marketing of opening and premiering at north wilkesboro that's just chef's kiss 
Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into some of those Easter eggs in a moment. But yeah, no, the timing about this North Wilkesboro thing is great because, you know, North Wilkesboro shut down effectively not long after this movie premiered, 2011. But it recently came back. We're recording this uh, on August 4th, and just a couple nights ago, uh, Racetrack Revival North Wilkesboro was back in action. They had a sellout crowd. Ryan Newman won a modified race their first night back. So uh, pretty cool. It kind of bookend that hopefully dark and very temporary period of North Wilkesboro Speedway's uh, lifetime, the 10 or so years where it sat largely abandoned, um, bookended by this podcast and the movie this podcast is focused on. I think that's pretty interesting. But uh, let's get into a few of those Easter eggs. We'll talk about some of the racing references uh, and and scenes first before we get into heavy spoilers and start to discuss the plot and the actual filmmaking. I know, Josh, you have a ton of notes there. I'm excited to, to hear you uh, talk about. Um, but first and foremost, this movie is a biopic. It's about Jimmy Llewellyn, who was born, the real Jimmy Llewellyn was born in 1919. Uh, he died in 1995, but he was a real NASCAR driver who early on was running moonshine uh, in North Carolina. Uh, He drove, like I said, in NASCAR's first ever race at Charlotte in 1949, and he continued to race in NASCAR regularly until 1960. Now, I thought this was interesting. He never actually won a NASCAR race. So we have a biopic here about a driver who never won a NASCAR sanctioned race, but he did score, I looked up the stats, the numbers, 57 top 10s in 142 starts. Now, uh, we do see this scene in the movie, but Jimmy Llewellyn was one of the few gentlemen who was there with Bill France Sr. uh, at the meeting that effectively formed NASCAR when the idea of a sanctioning body, the National, National Association of Stock Car Auto Racing, when that idea was first pitched, was first being bounced around to real investors, Jimmy Llewellyn was at that meeting. Now, this is also a point in the movie. Jimmy was one of the few who did not choose to invest in NASCAR. He was offered, you know, 500 bucks and you could be, uh, you know, an early investor, one of the first to jump on the NASCAR bandwagon. He turned it down. We'll get into why exactly he turned it down. The movie, I think, did a pretty good job of representing this scene, this conflict, this drama. Um, But Jimmy Llewellyn, besides being a race car driver, also fought in World War II which is another piece of ground that this movie attempts to tread. Uh, He was there on D-Day at the Battle of Normandy, uh, came home a decorated soldier, uh, continued to race in NASCAR until 1960, like I said. So he is who this movie is largely focused on. Are you surprised at all, Josh, that they chose to focus on Jimmy Llewellyn? uh, Jimmy Llewellyn, like a a name that I think, like I'd heard of, I think he's he's a name, but not... I wouldn't consider one of the earliest superstars in NASCAR by any means. It's he's an interesting choice, uh, just because he didn't he didn't win any races. He did turn down NASCAR. He he didn't have faith in NASCAR as uh, as a thing, as a cultural uh, force that it would become. Um, but I think he's it. It is in a way, it's a perfect example of. NASCAR, the history of NASCAR having so much potential for just fascinating stories and cool movies, to to put it bluntly, of uh, just this one guy, or and really there's there's a few historical figures that get a lot of screen time in this, but it, the the primary story is about Jimmy. Uh, I think. You know, I, I just think about all the, the sports movies I've ever seen about 
you know, some random high school basketball coach who helps, you know, his team pass algebra or something or <laughs> a baseball player who finds a magic catcher's mitt or, or some stupid stuff like that. Yeah. And then NASCAR is here with all of this. This guy who didn't win and didn't have faith in the sport, he's got an interesting, fascinating story. Wait until you wait. Where? Wait until we get a Curtis Turner movie or uh, a Bill France movie or or uh, uh, Kale Yarbrough uh, movie. Uh, you know, um, we talked in previous episodes about uh, we had two questions. One was about alligator attacks. Uh, and the other question was about, you know, Dale Earnhardt and, and the other guys hanging out and getting into mischief. <laughs> I talked to Ben White, who you mentioned earlier from a mm. lifetime in pot, uh, a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And he told me just stories about Cale Yarborough uh, wrestling an alligator and getting into mischief with his buddies uh, by putting a bear cub on an airplane uh, and just also I'm I'm not doing the stories justice. That's that's Ben's <laughs> thing. But like these are the stories that NASCAR has that are real uh, historical facts. Uh, that this is the, just a movie about Jimmy Llewellyn, who is po- po- the least interesting person in this movie out of all the historical figures that we see. Probably the least interesting is this guy who's a World War II uh, veteran. Uh, that I think there's just this just hints at all of the potential that, you know, NASCAR could have its own production company, its own NASCAR to Netflix pipeline of just historical movies uh, from the past about all these guys, starting number one with Jimmy Llewellyn, who's there at the start. Yeah, I'm definitely surprised in many ways that he is kind of the start. He is number one here because like you've mentioned, there are several other drivers that I think are more than worthy of their own biopics. Fireball Roberts has a brief cameo. Gosh, they could tell a story about Fireball Roberts, I'm sure. Uh, Curtis Turner has a few scenes kind of in the second half of this film. Curtis Turner, uh, our friend Slapshoes, YouTuber, of course, did a great video. He might have done a couple videos now. I get them mixed up sometimes on Curtis Turner in the past. You know, he was kind of one of the early superstar drivers, larger than life, nightlife, ladies, man, that whole thing. He got banned from NASCAR in, I think, 1961 for attempting to start a union with Bruton Smith. And that's something that Bill Frank Sr. wouldn't let any NASCAR drivers do. Curtis Turner decided to join it anyways and got banned for a period of time from NASCAR. So he went from being one of the stars to being blacklisted from stock car from NASCAR stock car racing overnight and so there's that's a story right there to me that's a movie uh I slaps shoes videos was was fantastic on it so I know it could be turned into something bigger uh and then of course there's Bill France Sr. who also plays a major role in this movie now they don't use the name Bill France Sr. which is interesting they use Curtis Turner's name they use Fireball Roberts Jimmy Llewellyn Obviously, the France family's got a lot of influence, a lot of power. I'm sure there's a extra layer of approvals they would have had to go through to use his actual name and or likeness. But uh, the stand-in for Bill France is Bud Nance. <laughs> well, very clever. Very, very well done. And I had to actually Google. I wasn't sure at first. When I watched this the first time, I'm like, this Bud Nance, is he supposed to be Bill France? I had to Google Bud Nance NASCAR to make sure that there wasn't an actual Bud Nance that did important things, just just to be sure. And uh, I couldn't find anything. So he is the stand-in for Bill France Sr., um, who we who's int- he's introduced in this movie as, you know, this great race promoter from, uh, from Florida. And you look into, like, 
Bill France Sr.'s beginnings, you could tell an amazing movie about him because some of the early races down at the beaches of Daytona were absolute messes, costing fans, drivers, the city tons and tons of money. Bill France Sr. was the guy who came in and identified, saw that there was potential to turn stock car racing into a large professional sport, a real serious business. It just needed it just needed guardrails. There needed to be a NASCAR in place to protect the drivers, to drive up the purse money, and to attract fans. So I feel like as as, as inspiring as Jimmy Llewellyn's story is, military veteran, race car driver, family man, all that stuff, I feel like he's the third or fourth most interesting person in this yeah. film. And, that, and in some ways, that's one of my gripes with the film. But it, as you said, does speak to the sheer number of fascinating characters in NASCAR's early beginnings from the early years of stock car racing. Not only do they call him Bud Nance, but they never actually say the word NASCAR either. They use they, it in a text box at the very end. That's the only time I believe they spelled it out as NASCAR, but that's the only time it's it's never verbally mentioned or, or name dropped. Yeah, there, there's something there's something interesting going on. And I think, you know, one of the things the big uh things that jumps out at you about this movie is the budget um and there's something to this there's a story we don't know about why they can't identify him as bill france why they can't use nascar and i think this movie would have benefited uh now um take that with a grain of salt um in terms of we see what happens when nascar does participate in movies you get talladega nights um, they've fully participated in that. Uh, but I, I think this movie could have uh, benefited a little bit from a, uh, some institutional support from official NASCAR um, to give it a little bit of budget, a little bit of oomph, um, to uh, give it just that little bit more of uh, officialness, um, if we can use that word, because there there is so much of the movie does rely i think on you already being a huge nascar fan right up to the fact that it is obvious that they don't say the word nascar because somebody says okay so what are we going to call it and then there's a smash cut and you know the answer you know the answer is we're going to call it nascar but if you don't know that, I, I think this movie, a lot of it would be really impenetrable of if you don't know who Curtis Turner is, you're not going to. I know who Curtis Turner is. So when he comes on screen and they're like, hey, everybody, here's Curtis Turner. You're like, yay, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, but if you don't know who that is, I, I think a lot of this movie could have benefited a little bit from put a little more English on it, um, put a few more logos here and there. Um, and things like that 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 could have benefited from official NASCAR support. Yeah, you said oomph, and I wholeheartedly agree because as I kind of joked at the beginning, this movie tackles some spectacular subjects. You know, racing, you know, old race, old cars through country roads to escape the cops, World War II, NASCAR early stock car racing, and this movie was made on a very small independent budget, and you can see it. Like it, it's. A small film 
that's trying to kind of manipulate the audience into thinking it's a big budget film because there are racing scenes in this movie. But that is one of my uh, number one probably complaints with this movie uh, is that the racing scenes are few, far between and very um, abbreviated. They're very short. You do see them race on little dirt tracks. You see them drive fast through the countryside, but it's short. It's not always cohesive. It feels like just kind of generic B-roll of cars sliding around, and, and, and that's about it. In fact, there's one big moment towards the end of the movie where uh, Jimmy races. This is a minor spoiler. We'll get into the plot here in just a moment, but there is one point at, late in the movie where Jimmy wins a, a big race um, here at this little local dirt track, and we never actually see the race. It just cuts to him in victory lane, and we're like, oh, Jimmy wins it. And it's like, okay, I didn't even see cars this time. Like, you know, we just see victory lane after the fact. So, you know, they wanted to tell a huge multi million dollar budget story on a shoestring budget. And it, I think they did an admirable job considering the resources they had. But that's where you're saying that oomph, that little bit of support, maybe from a NASCAR or a larger studio comes in and uh, I think could have put this thing over the top. Because as you said at the very beginning, a story about moonshiners, the beginnings of stock car racing, these rough, tough characters, fascinating stuff. But it requires to tell it a true period piece and give it the glory it deserves. Unfortunately, you do need a little more cash, and I think uh, the creators of Red Dirt Rising had at their disposal. Yeah, and the that part of the budget, I, I do want to kind of you know give a disclaimer here that you really are if you watch this movie you're going to come away with one of two impressions. Uh, either the low budget is going to be um, offensive uh, and not in an insulting way, but just like you're, you're not going to be able to unsee just how low the budget is. I, I, I came away with it with a slightly different impression, more positive impression that uh, it, I took it. I was able to put my mind in the place of like watching a stage play where uh, your imagination can kind of fill in, you know, when you play like some sure. super old video game and the the city in the background is just a rectangle with yellow uh, squares for windows, your imagination kind of fills in that that is a building and a city and this whole place exists behind uh, the the foreground. You can kind of do that with this movie. Um, and, and in that sense, it, it does... Uh, I mean, I, I'm imagining that some of these guys, I looked into their IMDb and it's their first movie. And yeah. when you talk about the very first movie you're going to make is a period piece with motorsports and a fatal crash at that yeah. plus World War II. I, the, you would be a crazy person to try to make that as your first movie on such a low budget. But they do pull it off. They pull it off in yeah. that sort of stage play kind of way where you just have to use your imagination. Oh, okay, World War II is happening in the background over there. Uh, you, you have to use your imagination. But in that sense, it is a masterclass of how to utilize a low budget. And again, if NASCAR or somebody else a little bigger had come in and gave them a $5 million budget instead of a $500,000 budget, uh, I think they showed what they can do with that low of budget. I would really like to see these guys tackle NASCAR history again with a slightly larger budget. I don't want $100 million with Chris Pratt in it. I'm just <laughs> talking like 
let something made for Netflix or uh, Hulu or something like that. Um, I think that kind of, that level of budget would have benefited this movie a lot. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Like I said, I think considering the resources they had, they actually did a very um, admirable job telling the story. I like the comparison to a stage play. It, that's what it felt like. It, it, it did feel that way in many cases. Simple sets, but they got the wardrobe right. The cars looked right. The cars looked true to the period. There weren't a ton of them, but they looked the ones they had looked good. Um, no, I, I think... Exactly. Considering the inexperience of some of the people involved in the movie, the low budget, no, it it does a great job. And uh, here, before we get into heavy spoilers and really start to pick some of the the key filmmaking aspects apart, because we do have to do that. We're snobby film critics now, Josh. We started a movie (laughs) podcast. That's what it comes with the territory. Uh, Should NASCAR fans give this movie a chance? Before we spoil the whole thing, should NASCAR fans watch this movie? I I would say a a hearty yes you should because only again only NASCAR fans will really appreciate this movie on all of its different levels there are so many times when all you get is a name drop or even again no name said just the hint of a name only you will get this movie only you will truly appreciate Fireball Roberts for 11 seconds of screen time uh, that kind of thing only you you are designed to appreciate this movie if you're a NASCAR fan. So you've you've convinced me a little bit. You've changed my mind a little bit since since I was first writing up my notes before we started recording. So uh, I consider myself a big NASCAR fan, but as I prefaced at the beginning, I'm not the hugest history buff in the world. Uh, but I had a hard time at points in this film sitting through the slow, um, you know, relationship drama. The guys giving each other grief. Oh, I'm faster than you. I'm faster than you. I, some of that stuff, it was kind of a chore to sit through at times. But the racing scenes, as as brief as many of them are, are great. And I think the accuracy. Um, the fact that there are lines in this movie that I was able to read in articles where actual lines said by some of these historical figures in those moments, the accuracy you have to commend, you have to respect, and it is charming to see a fairly true and accurate representation of Curtis Turner and Jimmy Llewellyn and Bill France Sr. and NASCAR's origins you know, put to the big screen in a high-quality HD, you know, clear picture. So your last point, if NASCAR fans don't enjoy this movie, I don't think anyone will. I, I yeah. think if you if you pull Joe Schmo off the street and say, hey, here's a movie about the early days of stock car racing, they're like, oh, okay, they're not going to enjoy this movie. The only way you'll enjoy this movie, I think, is if you're the kind of person who would have attended the premiere at North Wilkesboro Speedway in 2010. So that's why I, I think uh, we said this at the beginning. I think they knew who their target audience was and they played strongly to that audience. I don't think it's a huge audience. I don't know that every NASCAR fan would love or enjoy this movie. But if you consider yourself a history buff, if you've been watching for a long time, if you're a hardcore watch every Sunday NASCAR fan, then I agree with you. This movie is for you. I think you you can make it through some of the slower, sluggish parts. It's not a long movie. I think it clocks in at just under an hour and a half. So it's, it's not a chore to sit through, um, but don't expect you know, big flashy racing scenes and fireballs left and right and huge crashes. Don't expect that. You're not going to get it at this movie. Right. Yeah. No, this is not Days of Thunder. (laughs) No, no, absolutely not. 
Well, on that note, Josh, uh, I think we did a good job there kind of covering a lot of the racing. We'll still drop some some details in here uh, as we go, but I think we should get into more of the uh, actual filmmaking itself. You know, while this is a, a low-budget production, doesn't make it immune to some basic criticisms. We'll talk about some of the actors and the performances, but this is where I do kind of want to just run through the plot. So this is going to spoil effectively everything. Again, it is a biopic. So if you're familiar with Jimmy Llewellyn's story and the beginnings of NASCAR, you're probably familiar with this story anyways. But uh, I'll just run through the plot real quick. Again, the film focuses on Jimmy Llewellyn. We're introduced to him as a teenager running moonshine and racing his, his dad's truck against his friends, Fred Harb, Harb, Arb, Herb, it's Arb, uh, and Bill Blair. Uh, and Jimmy, he's got his eyes set on a girl, Carrie, but worries she won't go for a poor country boy like him. Uh, eventually, Bill Blair's dad builds Jimmy and all his friends a small dirt oval track so that they'll stop racing on country roads. And before long, the track turns into a, a small business of sorts with drivers bringing their cars to race and eventually real purse money being awarded. Now, tragedy strikes this new dirt track, Tri-County Speedway or racetrack, um, when an electrical fire kills a young driver named Henry. And now some suspect Buck, who I'll talk about in a minute, he's this kind of skeevy, selfish, just dickhead driver. Uh, people suspect maybe he was behind it, but you know, ultimately the races continue, the sheriff doesn't shut him down, etc. Now, Jimmy eventually manages to win over Carrie, but as soon as their relationship starts to get serious, Jimmy gets drafted. He's sent overseas to fight in World War II. He fights at the Battle of the Bulge. And like I said earlier, even at the Battle of Normandy, he's sending letters and awards that he gets for his service back home to Carrie and his mother. And the letters they send back to him, he discovers that he has a young daughter waiting for it at home. Whoa, big plot twist. Now, there's a jump forward in time here. Several years have now passed. Jimmy returns home from the war and he sees that Bill Blair is now running his dad's racetrack and it's been built up. It's got grandstands, concessions, more drivers, more fans, higher purse money. It's it's a legit operation now. Uh, Jimmy wants to keep racing, um, but Jimmy's wife, Carrie, is worried about his safety and worries that Jimmy's passion for racing may come at the expense of uh, their family's financial stability. Now, Buck... The, the the jerk, the asshole character, he goes through, there's a couple scenes in a row where he's just totally obnoxious. Like the movie realized maybe they need a bad guy. Um, at one point, Jimmy wins a race and Buck comes up and tries to like gaslight the entire crowd into thinking he won a race, despite apparently he took a smoke break on pit road for like 20 laps or whatever. And so anyway, he tries to make a big scene. Later on, he confronts Jimmy's family on the road, starts like running into their station wagon and Jimmy you know, punches him out. I feel like that was supposed to be the big climax of the movie where like, yeah, Buck finally got his deserve, his just desserts. But I, I don't know. It was, I don't know. To me, it was kind of spontaneous and I don't know. It, it didn't quite pack the punch that the, he literally landed uh, in the film. But uh, that that's my commentary. That, that, back, back to what actually happened on the plot. Um, Jimmy continues to win races and Bud Nance, the Bill France character, um, visits the track and asks Jimmy Llewellyn to attend a major meeting. And Jimmy does. And this is where he's asked to invest $500 to help start NASCAR. Jimmy refuses, citing the financial risk to his family. But he also says, quote, I just don't think it's going to amount to anything. And that, I believe, is a direct quote, something that the real Jimmy Llewellyn did say in that meeting. You said this earlier, Josh, didn't fully have faith in uh, the France family's vision for 
the National Association of Stock Car Auto Racing. So uh, that's basically where the movie ends. NASCAR, of course, happens anyway. And, and Jimmy, no bad blood there. He continues to race. He races in the first ever race at Charlotte. And that's effectively where things end. I just rambled for like five minutes, Josh. But that's uh, the plot. Where do you want to start? Um, do you want to start by picking apart some of the story elements? Or do you want to jump straight into the performances or, or, or something else? Yeah, you know, I, I want to start with the story and more specifically with the script, because I think once again, you have done a better job of succinctly telling this story than the movie. I don't know. I accidentally did. like made fun uh, of the story in the middle of it. I didn't need to do that. <laughs> I, uh, the, the, it is entirely, as we said, this is a movie about Jimmy Lou Allen. Uh, I don't think the movie figured that out until about halfway through that which person um the beginning of this movie there there are script problems with this one is like a sort of macro problem of we don't really figure out that the story is entirely about jimmy until i think he goes to world war ii yeah uh, in the beginning it's very much jumping around between him and bill blair and a little bit of Fred Harb, uh, not so much uh, Fred Harb, but really between Jimmy and Bill, and there, there's some casting problems I think that that exacerbate this. But the movie can't quite tell whose story it's about until Jimmy goes to World War II, and then, like you say, you know, he comes back, and we're all in his family and everything. Uh, but this, the movie has script problems of when do things happen and why are we seeing this person's perspective versus that person's perspective? And it all gets boiled down to the movie can't figure out if it's about Bill Blair or Jimmy Llewellyn until the middle of the movie or so. Uh, and then it very clearly becomes all about Jimmy. But there's a there's a fun piece of it in that you do see a lot of different cameos and, and pieces of NASCAR history, but it does ultimately confuse the fact that this is essentially a character movie, a biopic, as you said, about Jimmy. And that doesn't become clear until much later in the film. Yeah, early on, I, I was just trying to figure out where the conflict was. Like they established an early conflict uh Jimmy's dad gets mad at him for using his truck to, you know, run moonshine and race around the roads and do all this kind of illegal stuff. He gets mad at him, and at one point he um, confiscates the truck. But, oh, no big deal. I don't remember exactly what happens. Jimmy gets is able to, like, rent a car from Bill or somebody and is still able to race. Like, okay, no big deal. Um, the issue, you know, Jimmy trying to win over Carrie. At first it's like, oh, I don't think she's she's kind of different. She's uh, not who you think she is. I don't think she, you know, YouTube wouldn't make a good match. Oh no! They pretty quickly get to talk to each other. They go on a little picnic, go on a little joyride, and oh no, no, they they definitely are gonna fall in love. It's it's not not too much there. So I was, it felt very just like a Christmas story. At least in a Christmas story, there's the overarching conflict. He wants the Red Rider BB gun, but throughout that movie, it's kind of just scene after scene after scene, like almost like skit after skit, bit after bit that are loosely linked but not exactly. That's kind of how this felt. It was just events happening, a sequence of events happening one after the other. Sometimes they'd focus more on Bill because his dad's also mad at them at first for racing cars until he, you know, builds them a racetrack in their backyard to kind of corral them a little bit. But he's mad at his son. Jimmy's dad is mad at Jimmy. There's a lot of father-son angst there. It was hard to follow, like, an overarching plot until 
until the war happens and there's you know family like she does she want him to keep racing and putting put his safety on at risk on the line uh is is this gonna work out don't really get there until halfway through the movie yeah and you know the, so much of the first of all it is very tough to follow where you have these two guys who each have a father who doesn't like them racing for different reasons uh, and and comes at it from a slightly different perspective. It doesn't help that the two actors uh, that play Jimmy and play Bill Blair look exactly the same. Maybe, yeah. And so I had so much trouble following just scene to scene. And I watched this movie multiple times both of these guys look exactly the same and they will overlap their stories so much that it's like you'll see one of them arguing with his dad and in the next scene the other dad like reconciles with the other guy and so like their their stories are are overlapping and not again this is all script problems of they they couldn't you know you bring up Carrie and her talking with, you know, her being against racing or whatever, that that will be one scene. One scene she'll be, you know, oh, I don't like this racing. It's really dangerous. You you could get hurt. Followed by the next scene, her saying, you know, I support you racing. I've never asked you to quit. <laughs> Followed by another scene of her saying, I don't like this racing thing. I think it's too dangerous. And the the script forgets where it's at at any point, like forgets, I think, who it's talking about, who, what just happened in the scene before it, because it is, like you said, it's this disconnected series of events. And I think part of the macro issue is with any history movie, and this goes for this movie or uh, Braveheart or 300 or something like that, it doesn't matter. It, it's very easy to give everything a sense of inevitability. This had to happen. This is the natural course of history. And what happens when you try to make uh, take this story of inevitability, this is the rise of NASCAR, and nothing else could possibly ever happen except the, the timeline that we know of. When you get down into the details of what people said to their family and how they interacted with each other, it wasn't that inevitability. And so you do just life is just this series of events that happen uh, right up until, okay, magically, this is, uh, you know, something historic and that's the founding of NASCAR or World War II even. But those two things conflict in the script of it's trying to have this arc of history that bends towards NASCAR, right? But also these discrete intimate moments of childhood or, or teenage uh, age uh, Jimmy and then war Jimmy and then family Jimmy, very disconnected, very disconnected. Yeah, and I, I can't help but go back to what you said earlier because it is glaring. Bill and, J and Jimmy look very similar, the actors, and both their dads look very similar. <laughs> it was, and then later Curtis Turner shows up and looks identical as well. It was very, very, very confusing. Um, what did you make of the way the film looked? You made a comment to me right before we started recording, and it was like it, it took the words 
out of my mouth, but like the words had never made it to my mouth yet. They were still being processed in my brain. So you beat me to it. But uh, you made a comment about how the film looks. It's a period piece. It's got kind of this warm, slightly like saturated color tone to it, but it's missing something. And how, how did the film look to you? I, yeah, it does. It, and it was, uh, you know, we, we found the, the production information. It is one of the very first movies made with the, the red digital camera um, that, you know, would go on to shoot Marvel movies and things. Yeah. Ultra high quality uh, cinematic camera. And uh, yes, there is that, that color grading to give it that sort of uh Chevy commercial kind of uh, <laughs> sheen that that magic hour look to it but that crisp digital picture makes it look really cheap uh a, a little bit of film grain would have gone a long way just uh, uh, and and not even do do I think they shouldn't have shot it on the red the, the camera looks great the those crisp shots of those beautiful North Carolina fields and everything I, camera's great but just in Adobe Premiere, add a little filter, add some film grain, just a little bit, because it looks like, uh, you know, those things at the Oscars where they do the parodies of the movie. Uh, <laughs> and that guy, it looks very cheap, like an SNL, uh, you know, sketch, uh, you know, digital sketch. It's too crisp. And, and what's the paradox of that is it is so crisp and so high definition that it makes it look cheap. Well, you can see all the the shortcomings in the costumes, like the, you know the characters don't look that they don't have like as much dirt on their face or their clothes aren't as worn out. You can tell that oh they're they're just wearing like an average flannel shirt that you could probably buy at Walmart today. Uh, and again, it kind of contributes to the as you said earlier the feeling that this is a stage production, that you're watching a play. It, it feels yeah. like you're just watching it with your naked eye, which doesn't, in most people's cases, have a, like a film grain or filter put over it. And so I think I agree with you. It kind of removed me from the movie in a way that I couldn't fully add up in my brain until you said it before we went live. So I, want, I wanted you to relay that here because people listening who've seen the movie, I think will probably agree and say, oh, you know, I didn't, didn't think about that. But yeah, actually lowering the video quality <laughs> would have enhanced the uh, the experience, I'd say. So um, what's next, Josh? We, we've, we've kind of talked about the script story, definitely paced interestingly, um, or, or it doesn't seem to know whose story it is until at least halfway through. How does the editing play into that as well? Because um, I did feel like this the the film jumps around quite a bit. Uh, like there, even just between like a, a conversation between two characters, where it's just a shot, reverse shot over the shoulder. Like sometimes the cuts, they'd cut to the character reacting to what the other character is saying. It's just a weird moment. Like I don't know, when you watch a ton of movies, you don't really think about these things until you see it done awkwardly. And I felt like that was done at times here. So I, I don't know. Was there any other notes you had there on the actual like technical production? Of yeah. This thing? Uh, in fact, you know, you mentioned that uh, some of the scenes you found boring or like a chore, a tedious, um, you know, and it, it does have that feeling of jumping around from scene to scene to scene. I think this is overall a problem with the editing. Uh, and that I, I kept wanting to beg the movie to slow down. You're right. It, it is shot, reverse shot. As soon as that, that character is done saying their dialogue, 
boom, cut, next scene. Uh, you know, this scene is to establish that their relationship is growing. The second your brain registers that that's what this scene is, boom, cut onto the next thing. They need to slow down, sit in a scene, sit in a moment, let the actors take a beat, especially the emotional stuff. Uh, you know, the scenes that come to mind are the their picnic when uh, yeah. Jimmy and Carrie are, are having a picnic and they're growing romantically, all of that stuff. That scene goes so fast and the actors are putting in work and particularly Carrie, um, the, the actress Ashley Payne, puts in a lot of work in this movie and just smash cut past it, past it. And when somebody is um, grieving or, um, you know, having a romantic moment, any kind of raw emotion, you need to sit in that a moment and, and let us process. These are not fleeting, impulsive emotions. They are... Uh, not only deep human emotions, but they are deep as far as their impact on the story. And it just smash cut, smash cut every single scene. The second that scene has fulfilled its purpose, boom, on to the next one. I feel like this movie could have had an extra, I, I don't know, three or four minutes of just hanging on different scenes, pulling out a little bit. Uh, letting the emotion breathe, letting the characters breathe. Uh, it really, uh, I, so much of the, these big problems with the movie, I think can be pinned on these very small choices of whether it's the script or the editing of just trying to edit too efficiently almost, or or a, a better, better, better way to look at it is, it is a movie edited by a race fan in that they are <laughs> racing from opening credits to end credits, just scene, 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 scene. And if you want us to uh, really, uh, you know, become friends with the main characters, if you want us to appreciate the romantic relationship, if you want us to uh, fret and worry with the the wife and the mother and the daughter at home during wartime. If you want us to feel all of those things, or even the sadness and the tragedy when the the other driver is killed, uh, if you want us to feel those things, you gotta give it a second. You gotta give us a few beats, hang on it, let the actor do their work, and then cut. Then you can cut. Yeah, the only scene, I want to transition a little bit to the performances because you mentioned uh, Ashley Payne as Carrie. The only scene, and I should say the only shot in this movie that I feel like really let the actors work, as you say, was that slow dolly in on Carrie and um, Jimmy's mom as they're reading the letters and unboxing the um, Purple Heart, the awards um, that Jimmy got for, from being in the war, that he sent them from Europe, effectively. It's a long shot. I don't know. Maybe it might even... I didn't clock it. It's probably like close to a full minute. And the two women are both, you know, borderline in tears. You hear that little wail, the warble in their voice as they're reading these very emotional uh, letters. They're unboxing very... Um, uh, very emotional me mementos, meaningful um, awards, uh, and they get the, the news. I think this is also where they get the news that Jimmy is coming home, that the war is over or that his deployment is over and he'll be returning home soon. So it's a kind of a, a somber 
but also uh, kind of uplifting scene that lets those two actresses put in some serious work. Uh, Cindy Hogan plays uh, Ellie, I believe is her name, the, the mom, Jimmy's mom, so give her credit as well. Um, but aside from that, the rest of the movie, it, it did feel like the cuts got in the way of any emotional weight, like you said. But I want to focus on some of the other performances as well, and I'll let you talk about um, Carrie and, and, and the mom as well. Um, but the two, I'd say the two main guys, Brad Yoder plays Jimmy Llewellyn, and Burgess Jenkins plays Bill Blair. What do you think of them? I, th- I don't know. I, I thought they were fine. I, Very inconsistent acting, I would say. Yeah. There were times when I was totally there for it, and then there were times where um, the accent maybe got in the way, or, uh, you know, the accents didn't really bother me when you're talking about the 40s and that kind of rural stuff i think you can get a little bit of that gone with the wind accent going um that that kind of stuff is fine but there were times when um they're just they're very bland and again they're so similar i kept getting them mixed up down to yes the, the the relationship between carrie and jimmy is a huge piece and I kept forgetting which one was with Carrie and which one was already married. Uh, it's they are just not enough. I, I think even the uh, Curtis Turner and, and uh, uh, Fireball Roberts had more charisma in their brief appearances, I think, than these two guys. They needed um, a, a little bit more character design or a little bit more a little bit bolder choices with their acting or something because they they're both the same exact loaf of bread yeah there's a reason like superheroes uh superhero costumes are bright and colorful you know batman you can spot from my way he's black Superman, red and blue, Wonder Woman, gold, you know, it's obvious from a distance who they are. And honestly, simple visual indicators like that, I think, go a long way um, to translating more about the audience or more about the character to the audience. But in this case, they're all dressed in those same little newsy hats, you know, kind of a, a untucked, you know, flannel shirt, jeans. They look very similar. I thought their performances were whatever they were fine um i actually agree with you that some of those other side characters had a little more charisma in their bits um bud nance played by r keith harris uh (laughs) at one point at the end scene when he's delivering when he's leading the meeting in daytona with everybody else trying to get them to invest in nascar and and take on nascar for a brief instant i thought that was bill bear bill blair for a moment i thought because he'd aged because we jumped forward in time a few years i was like wait is that bill blair leading this meeting no 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 that's oh no that, that's bill frank that's bud nance oh, okay so even his performance while i thought it was a little different maybe a little more nuanced it was just it's just hard to tell the characters apart i don't know it's it's maybe i'm just blind i i, I mean that's i kept thinking am i am i having some sort of like facial blindness dementia or something like it's so jarring that you cannot keep them apart you cannot tell who is who uh in this and right it's a costume choice put a hat on this one give this guy a beard do something yeah so that they look different the only two male characters who i would say really you know looked and sounded and it performed differently than the rest um i know you had a note on this guy quentin care who plays fred harb 
Um, and while I don't love his character, it just felt like you, they just needed a cartoonish bad guy. But um, Bill Oberst Jr., who plays Buck, the, the villain driver, um, at least they're both different. Um, either different voice, you know, uh, Fred kind of has kind of like this kind of voice. And then, you know, Buck is, oh, I'm down here. I'm the, I'm going to get you. You know, at least they sounded a little different. They looked a little different. Um, you know, the music would change in tone. It would be very bright and uplifting when Fred had something to say, but it'd be a little more whenever Buck was instigating something. Uh, little key things like that at least help differentiate those characters because otherwise we would have had like, it, it was getting out of hand. There was way too many guys on screen that looked like brothers. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have bought that uh, that Jimmy and Bill were both brothers. Uh, the, the first time I watched it until I could differentiate their parents um yeah i, I would have bought that they were brothers both same family everything and buck buck's another one where the script i think forgot about him or realized he was still in the movie and yeah, they, they just brought him in as him. as a villain in the third act they're like oh we need like a bad guy <laughs> yeah i i will say they did a nice job we talked before about some of the the problematic elements in how you talk about not NASCAR's history per se, but the history of the South in this particular time period. Um, and I think they did a good job of comparing and contrasting the moonshining elements of the criminal elements and talking about why they engaged in that criminal behavior compared with the moral crimes of buck buck's a liar he's a cheater he's a wife beater yeah um you know they can i thought they did a nice job of showing how you handle the issue of the sort of gangster outlaw background of nascar and how you frame that element of rather than seeing them as immoral bad guys who these crooks they contrast that with actual moral failings uh you know like because i think they those two things are in different worlds of are you breaking the prohibition laws versus uh do you beat your wife i think those are on different levels in terms of morality versus ethics and things and i thought that movie the they used buck i think well for that unfortunately yes they did remember that he's the villain at the end and he has to get punched and normally i'm all for punching out the villain and kissing the girl at the end of these things but it came out of nowhere and it was weird (laughs) and also any character could have punched him out and we would have got the same satisfaction um it, it didn't really make sense there but i he did a good job i think of showing the difference so so that you wouldn't get the impression that these moonshining kids are the actual bad guys they're you know evil criminals uh they're doing it for a lot of different reasons mostly economic but also you know people need uh a little bit of cheer in the dark times of the depression and so forth uh Mm. buck kind of managed that of showing the true dark side that nascar had to get rid of um not necessarily do they need to shy away from that moonshining history 
No, that's actually a great point that you make because I remember back to, and I was kind of hard on Stroker Ace for this point. They played, uh, they play Stroker Ace as the hero, the swashbuckling, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, they don't even really play him as an anti-hero. They just say, oh, he's kind of, kind of sleazy, but he's the guy you're supposed to root for. And I had a real hard time rooting for him in that movie. And this, and in this story, though, you're right. If nothing else, they do use Buck well in a, you know, clearly establishing a moral pecking order. If anyone watching this has an issue, you know, there's some people out there that will have an issue with, um, you know, Bill and, and Jimmy breaking the law with you know, running moonshine across state lines and all that. But compared to, compared up against what um, Buck is seen doing repeatedly throughout this movie, it doesn't compare. I think most any, uh, anyone, the, the average person can clearly um, establish a pecking order that Buck is, at the bottom of that he is the villain he's the one who ultimately needs to be stopped he is the true menace to society um no matter what worldview you're looking at this through so that that's actually a really good point that you make right there and i don't want to uh move too far past i know i rambled for a moment about uh carrie and um and ellie but i i know you wanted to talk about them a little bit as well did you have anything else to add about their performance as kind of the two leading ladies if you will yeah, I Carrie Ashley Payne. I she was the big standout. She could she seemed like she could carry a show. Um, she put in her character out of everybody, followed in a close second by the the mom Ellie, uh, played by Cindy Hogan. Um, Carrie's role had I think the most work, the most acting work, the the biggest range of emotions, the biggest range of character to express um followed by the mom and then that scene you brought up where you know they get the package and they, they're opening the letter and um they're not sure is this is this their letter saying you know we regret to inform you or yeah. you know what they don't know what's in that box carrie's looking at that box just terrified of what could be in there is that his flag you know folded up kind of thing and you see them go through this range of emotion of first being terrified and then relieved. And then they're kind of like laugh, crying and dealing with both of those emotions as they read his letter. That's a lot of work <laughs> for an actor. That's right there. That's what you're paying for when you get actors. And uh, they really stood out. Not that everybody else wasn't great. Um, there were, uh, I think there was some overacting but as we've talked about in the past, I would rather have overacting and just swinging for the fences versus the Shania Twain, Zac Efron, just point the camera at me and my mouth will make the right noises kind of acting. Um, I, I liked uh, a lot of the acting in this, even though it is a little overacting, but those two, Ashley Payne, Cindy Hogan, can't say enough that they, carried a lot of the emotional weight of this movie that the other the main actors bill and jimmy were i either for for direction or or whether it's them personally i don't know they were not able to express that emotion or carry that charisma the way that ashley payne and cindy hogan were yeah the subtlety in uh ashley payne's performance especially especially in that one scene that's made for the screen 
Um, I think going back to our sort of stage play comparison, that's where I think a lot of the other performances come in, especially guys like Buck, Fred. Uh, you know, it's a little more cartoonish. It's a little more outlandish. It's like it's like they didn't realize this film was being shot on, you know, super duper high res <laughs> state of the art camera equipment. So um, I think that's where you can really draw the comparison. And, you know, sometimes those little subtle um, differences in performance. Um, make all the difference on film. So uh, absolutely, I think she was the standout. Um, We're starting to near the end here, Josh. I feel like we've touched on a lot. Is there anything I've missed? I'm looking through my notes now, trying to see if there's any final thoughts. Um, We've talked about most of the character performances. Uh, We've talked about the target audience. I I, I still can't get over the fact that this thing was premiered at North Wilkesboro Speedway. I think that that's really, really cool. And I, and I, I read that they had roughly 4,000 um, you know, people in attendance. So that's a pretty, pretty huge premiere without question. Yeah, and, and that, again, you will, you will really only appreciate this stuff as a NASCAR fan. It does have the biopic movie cliches of, oh, Hi, Elvis Presley, meet Buddy Holly. Uh, you know, like it, it's got a lot of that, like literally Fireball Roberts walks on screen and they're like, hey, everybody, look, it's Fireball Roberts. And, and yet if, if you don't know who that is, that scene is nonsense. But if you <laughs> do know who that is, it's super fun. But in that sort of cheesy way where, uh, you know, like like you were talking about with the Elvis movie, it's it's walk hard, uh, the Dewey Cox movie. It's um, you know the that Motley Crue movie from Netflix. It's every biopic cliche in terms of like, oh, hello, famous person, meet this other famous person uh, from history that the audience will definitely know. Um, and, and they even say like, have you? Have you heard of this new thing called getting sponsors? Who ever heard of that? Like, uh, yeah, really just dumb stuff for the audience that we know what that means. We know the implications of that. But the characters are just having fun with it. it it's very cliche. But again, if you're a NASCAR fan, you're going to be having a blast. Again, this is a smaller budget film that I think largely flew under most people's radar when it came out. And, uh, I know we talked about this a little bit, I believe, in the Fireball 500 episode that has not been fully aired and still needs to be uh, edited quite a bit. But the question is, would NASCAR, they didn't put anything behind this movie, do you think they would ever put something substantial behind a, a period piece about the moonshining beginnings of stock car racing? Do you think that that's something NASCAR today would endorse and would actively support a larger production, a larger budget production being produced. I think they could, if they handled it the way this movie handled it. Um, and we did talk about that a little bit in our in our our lost Fireball Five Hundred episode. But yeah, th- this movie handles the problematic elements in a very deft way. Um, one is that people of other races just simply don't exist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and so, ever comes up because they never appear in this movie so there's nothing uh, no conclusions at all you can draw about the time period as far as that dynamic goes and then again the criminal element is contrasted against moral elements and differentiating the two that they did that they were engaged in this lifestyle in this criminal element but that is separate from them as 
moral people or or doing evil or things that we would regret um you know there are some racial dynamics from the time period that people would like to forget i don't think that same um fog should hang over the moon shining part i think there's a way to tell it of contrasting you know legal things versus moral things and how those can exist on two different planes um i think they that this kind of movie could be made with a, a bigger budget a bigger backing from nascar as a matter of fact i really like your idea for a bill france uh movie in terms of i would like an entire movie just made about that meeting in florida uh where the entire movie takes place around that meeting and uh you know bill france having to convince all of these various characters and meet their demands and um all of that sort of thing again there's so much history here including just in this little window of time of uh pre-war depression time uh post-war bootlegging moonshining i think there's so many stories there they'd be to answer your question they'd be crazy not to they're, they're foolish not to exploit these amazing characters that are all real uh again the guy that fought in normandy and the battle of the bulge is the least interesting character in this <laughs> movie uh that's that they'd be crazy not to be making movies about this stuff get with netflix get with hulu who cares uh these stories have to be told yeah i i agree i think nascar nascar would certainly not want any of the warts to be uh promoted but you'd need some of them to exist you need the criminal aspect to be at the core of the film obviously things like you know social issues in the south in the 30s 40s 50s i think they would likely inevitably be part of the story as well if you go into the 60s i'm I, you know and they start telling wendell scott's story that obviously would become a huge uh, element of it but i i were i just feel nascar even if nascar were to throw a little bit of money behind it i'm not sure they'd be able to get uh, a large enough studio production company to to take the risk i just don't know because it's who do you tell the story about you can't tell a jimmy llewellyn story that's not going to turn any heads maybe you can do something with curtis turner or bill france jr but i just feel like with biopics these days you get it's a big name you know you see all these music ones these days elton john elvis yeah it's like where's that where's that name in the early nascar years i know nascar fans are going to scream oh bill france lee petty richard petty if you want to go a little later and maybe Richard Petty, but that's a, that's not the era we're really focused on here. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just worry with the way Hollywood thinks that it's not something they would ever consider exploring or putting any serious amount of money behind. So it might result in NASCAR doing it all, most of it out of pocket. And I, I think they could tell great stories with it. Obviously, we saw what this movie could do on less than a million dollars. Um, but I don't know. And it's the tragedy of it, though, is yeah. that because they won't touch this stuff, because they can't touch the moonshiners or even the, the Kale Yarbrough alligator wrestling, like they won't touch that stuff. So the end result is that we get just pure garbage, like that Kevin James thing or like yeah. a cartoon gopher and just a pure pop culture trash that 
if NASCAR is going to throw sitting on this gold mine, if they're going to throw significant money behind something, it has to. They're going to want to weave in modern day active sponsors to it. Like that's just where it's going to come down to, I think. And, that, and I think that does that is going to get in the way uh, of telling these stories truthfully, accurately, and and giving them, you know, the, maybe the budget, the oomph. Let's go back to that, the oomph that they. I think deserve. I think we both think they deserve. That's what I think that comes down to. So I, I don't know. NASCAR these days is so focused on the future, the next generation, the new audience. I just don't see them throwing any significant money behind something that takes place in the 1930s and 40s. It's a shame, but maybe someday someone will have the ways and means to make it happen, and NASCAR will at least give it their blessing. I think that's what we can hope for, at least as race fans and again as i preface this whole episode i'm not the strongest nascar historian in the world and josh i know you love the history of this kind of stuff maybe more than i do a little bit even but the two of us not even the strongest nascar historians we know and we're actively asking someone to uh, continue to tell more of these stories this was a great start red dirt rising a really solid start considering what they had to work with but uh, i think they could do more we could go bigger better a lot of great stories that deserve this kind of highlight so Josh, final thoughts on uh, Red Dirt Rising? Watch it if you are a NASCAR fan. If you are not a NASCAR fan, why are you listening to this podcast? And also, (laughs) this movie will make very little sense to you. I agree. Well, on that note, thank you, everyone, for listening. This was episode five of Zoom Lens. Josh, thanks for being here. Uh, Not entirely sure because of all the technical glitches and busy schedules. I think next will be Fireball 500. So uh, be sure to check it out so you can be more involved in our next film conversation. This was a good time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time on Zoom Lens. Calloused hands and a piece of earth. Trying to survive Rich in dreams but poor by birth Full of southern pride And late at night if you listen close The hills come alive Red dirt rising in the Carolina pines Yeah.